Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, the Fulton County Board of Commissioners has rejected the firing of Elections Director Richard Barron. Again, Later on the program, I'll be joined by Fulton Commissioner Khadija Abdul-Rahman. She'll have more. But first this, an NPR analysis recently places Georgia at the bottom in the country for administering COVID-19 vaccinations. The ranking was based on the percentage of the population that has received the first dose of the vaccine. Now, at a press conference yesterday, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp said the state had to reallocate its first dose supply last week to make sure Georgians receive their second dose on time. We expect those numbers will improve very shortly, especially with the expanded eligibility occurring next Monday, March the 8th. But we can and should do more to make absolutely certain more doses are getting into the arms of Georgians as quickly as possible. Meanwhile, the governor also announced the state is opening five more mass vaccination sites later this month, which brings the total number now to nine. And as he mentioned, starting Monday, teachers, other school staff and people with intellectual and developmental disabilities will be eligible to receive a vaccine. Now, so far, the state is reporting a little bit over two million, two million Georgians have been vaccinated. As for other coronavirus numbers at the time, here's what we can tell you. There are 823,008 confirmed cases. The number of confirmed deaths is 15,349. Gwinnett County has the most confirmed cases with 80,000 plus, followed by Fulton County. Followed by Fulton, Cobb, DeKalb, and Hall counties. Now, in other news, this year's Georgia's legislation session has passed past its halfway mark. Lawmakers are now under a time crunch to approve legislation just in time. Now, on this program, I've talked a lot about changes to the state's voting system and public health changes, but there's something else that we haven't talked about yet. So, guess what? We're going to talk about it now. We turn our attention to education. And there are measures that include DACA students' tuition to a special needs voucher expansion bill. And joining me now to talk about all this is WABE education reporter Martha Dalton. Martha, as always, good to see you. I haven't seen you in a long time. Where you been? I know. It's great. I've been I've been locked down in quarantine. Um, it's great to see you, Rose. Great to be here. Let's start because at this moment, the House Higher Education Committee is currently uh, underway. For our listeners that may not understand, take them through what happens at all these committee meetings. Oh, wow. Well, for this one in particular, there are four different bills that the committee is considering. Um, the one big one, like you said, that we're watching is one that could potentially allow students who have DACA, which is a federal protection 
shields them from deportation. Mm -hmm. um, these are these are children who are brought to the U.S. Um, excuse me, they're people who are brought to the U.S. as children, um, and it could potentially allow them uh, to get in-state tuition rates at some Georgia public colleges. Now, it would it would exclude still the research universities mm -hmm. where um, undocumented students right now can't attend, um, and that would stay the same in this bill. Um, but at other schools, it would let them pay in-state rates, and that's that's been a huge barrier up until now. Right now, through your lens, Martha, does it look like that measure has some bipartisan support? It does look like it has bipartisan support. It's had some uh, bumps along the way in terms of uh, the wording of the bill, um, lawmakers have gone back and forth between the uh, the amount that students should pay. So at one point in the process, uh, they were going to offer what's called opportunity tuition as opposed to in-state tuition, which would be somewhere in between the in-state and out-state rates. Mm. So it's had a lot of, it's gone through um, a lot of uh, different tweaks and changes. Um, now they, they've done away with that for this version of the bill. Um, so this current version has bipartisan support. Um, whether or not it will pass just kind of remains to be seen. Um, what's interesting about it, I think, is that, you know, Rose, you remember just a decade ago um, when the legislature passed a bill, a really strict immigration bill mm -hmm. that was one of the strictest in the country. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that had bipartisan support mm -hmm. um, and that wasn't that long ago. So um, it's interesting that, you know, this bill um, not only has bipartisan support, but is sponsored by a Republican, um, you know, who has people in his district mm -hmm. who are his neighbors, he says, you know, he goes to church with um, people who he says, you know, it breaks his heart that they don't have access to um, the public college in mm. their community. So it's a very interesting, um, you know, I think, look at where we were and where we are now um, in terms of the thing of, uh, toward undocumented college students. And Martha, I want to back up for a little bit because I want our listeners to understand there was some good news for educators this year because at the very start of the legislative session, lawmakers approved plans to give teachers and some other state employees a little bit of a bonus, $1,000. As my father used to say, every, every little bit helps. Um, now, who exactly will receive these extra dollars? And I guess more importantly, when will they get it? Right. I think that's... Um, a question that a lot of people would like the answer to. Um, I think it's important to remember when we're talking about money from the state that goes from the state to schools, mm -hmm. um, it has to go through the state's uh, funding formula for schools. So not to be too goofy about this, but you know, it's not like the governor can say, well, I want to give every uh, school employee a thousand dollar bonus. And he goes to the schools and hands the bonus. You know, it's not quite that straightforward. It has to go into the funding formula. Uh -huh. So in that process, um, certainly the governor's intent, and uh, I believe the intent of most districts, is to make sure that that $1,000 gets to school employees. Um, and this would include school staff in addition to teachers. Mm. Um, but, you know, in some districts that have been hit really hard, if there are bigger budget holes, it's possible that um, the money could go to that instead just out of necessity. So I think it's just important to note that whenever... 
Um, we're looking at money coming from the state to schools. You always have to think about that. It goes through the funding formula. Mm -hmm. It's not the same as if a school board decided to give bonuses and ah. then they could just, you know, give it directly to teachers. Now, Martha, the governor is attempting to add more teachers to the state's workforce before we get into how exactly he plans to do that. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Why do you think the state is seeing a shortage in educators? Well, the Georgia Department of Education actually wanted to find out. So they did a survey in 2015 um, and found that 47% of teachers in the state, and this is Georgia specific, left the profession in five years. And the top reasons for that, some of the top reasons, were the number of mandated tests they had to give, mm. uh, the teacher evaluation process, um, and their non-teaching related duties that were piling up. So um, so those are some of the sort of big reasons why the state has had trouble retaining teachers. Um, now the governor, um, in, in terms of what the governor wants to do, obviously he he's trying to strengthen the pipeline. So he's introduced um, some legislation to try to um, shore up the ranks. Hmm. Now, there's separate legislation that would also let retired teachers return to classrooms and still draw retirement, but only if they teach in what's considered a high needs area. Right. That's right. Um, and that that is part of the governor's pipeline legislation. Um, it's not part of the big bill that just went through the Senate, but mm -hmm. it is part of his legislation. Um, and, and it's attractive, right, to to people, right? The idea of being able to basically have a job and draw on your retirement um, would be great for a lot of people. It just depends, you know, how many people are willing um, or maybe even have the experience to go into a high needs area, you know, uh, that that sort of piece of it remains to be seen. And Martha, I want to get into this next measure, because when I tell you I receive so many different emails and people say, ask Martha Dalton about this. So I'm asking you about this. Another measure currently under consideration is the expansion of Georgia's current special needs scholarship. This is mm -hmm. a voucher program that's been around since 2007, but lawmakers are seeking to make some changes. So. Let's bring our listeners up to speed on what the current special needs scholarship is all about and what the changes entail. That's uh, a great question. So Georgia has had a special needs scholarship program. Um, it essentially provides a voucher, and I use that term just to so people have a frame of reference of mm -hmm. what the program is about. Uh, but it's had it since 2007. So um, if you have an individualized education program, uh, you, which usually covers one of 13 different disabilities mm -hmm. as outlined in, in federal law. If you have that, you qualify, you can qualify for a special needs voucher where you could take the state portion of the money that's being s spent on you as a student and apply it to private school tuition if your needs aren't being met in, in public school. Mm. Um, now, what this bill would do, now that was already in place, so that's what Georgia's current special needs scholarship is. Um, what this bill will do is expand the pool of students that are eligible. So in addition to IEPs or individualized education programs, this bill would include students who have 504 plans under federal law. And that includes a wider range of disabilities. So essentially they're just, they're increasing the number of kids who would be eligible to receive the scholarship. Uh, and so of course, now we get into concerns about well, supporters of the bill say it's revenue neutral, while opponents say it would siphon millions from public schools. I know you've heard both of this, both sides throughout all of this. 
Right, exactly. Um, it it sort of depends on who you ask as to what the impact um, could be of the bill. And also it depends on how many kids end up taking advantage of it. Mm -hmm. Obviously, right now, um, state officials say it's about a 3% participation Part, excuse me, a 3% participation rate. Mm -hmm. um, so again, depending on how you look at that, that's, you know, that 3% could stay in the public schools, you know, or, and so it's money that's being diverted or it's, it's 3%. So it's not a, a huge impact. It just kind of depends. Martha, where's this bill? It, I believe it has passed the Senate, correct? Yes, it passed yesterday. Um, what, what are your your in, your inside folks telling you about the possibility of this even making it to the governor's desk for his signature? Well, there's certainly um, you know a, a soft spot uh, for students with to help students with special needs. I mean, I think all lawmakers would agree um, with that. Um, it's a little bit it it had a little bit of trouble in committee. Um, it did squeak by in committee, but it had a little bit of trouble in the process because I think a lot of lawmakers are really wary about diverting any money from public schools or even the appearance of diverting money from public schools, given that they had to cut a billion dollars from the budget last year. Mm. Now, they've, the governor has has recommended restoring about 60% of that. But I think there's, there's a little bit of um, caution around doing anything that looks like it's going to harm or financially take away from public schools. Well, Martha, you know, you I used to always tease you because, you know, you were a former educator and I know you were a great educator. And, and but I wonder through your lens, when you assess what these educators are going through this last year, I mean, can you imagine as a teacher dealing with the pandemic and and all of this? It's, it's just got to be overwhelming. Yeah, no, I don't. I honestly, Rose, I don't know how they're doing it. And you were a great I mean, teacher, by the way. I don't want people to think. Well, that no, I was you teasing. don't. You don't know that. <laughs> um, no, honestly, truly, I look at what teachers have to do right now, and I honestly don't know how they're doing it. Some of them are, um, you know, having to teach virtually and in person at the mm -hmm. same time, and some are teaching those two. Um, those two different sets of students differently. Um, you know, their planning obviously has increased. Um, they've had to change uh, what they do in order to um, deliver it virtually. It's, mm -hmm. it's got to be massively time consuming. Yeah. And honestly, I don't know how, I don't know how they're doing it truly. Yeah, they are truly, truly been just outstanding. And Martha, before I let you go, there are so many other measures that we couldn't get to, but I know there are some bills that you are keeping an eye on. Right. Well, there are actually two other voucher bills uh, that are being considered and could make it through before crossover day, which is Monday. Um, so I'll be looking at those. Of course, I'll be watching to see if the governor's pipeline legislation goes through. It doesn't seem like that has hit any major snags yet, though. Mm -hmm. And then today we should have some clarity on where the uh, DACA tuition bill is is heading. Martha, I want to get your thoughts on what you're hearing about a bill that would affect transgender athletes. It just passed through committee. Uh, what are you hearing about this bill? A lot of folks have a lot. Some folks are obviously are in favor, but a lot of folks have opposition to it. Right. And I think that there's a lot of confusing messaging around that bill. Um, I think uh, there's there's confusion in general, I think, around that bill and exactly what the effects of it would be mm -hmm. and what, you know, what the impact would be. Um, so I've heard, like you said, both people both 
for it and against it. Um, it tends to bring up very strong emotions, I think, on both sides. Um, but I think there needs to be a clear message about what the bill would what the intent of the bill is mm -hmm. um, and what what it would what effect it would have if it if it does go into law, mm -hmm. it does become law. WABE education reporter Martha Dalton, as always, thank you for taking the time and for your work and following these issues. Stay safe out there, Martha. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Rose. And Martha was a great teacher. I don't care what she says. <laughs> Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. We know it's been quite apparent job loss and illness have created instability and millions are struggling to make ends meet. Well, we all know why, because of the pandemic. And as I've reported on this program so many times, and according to several recent reports, it's estimated that 30 to 40 million people are at risk for evictions amid this ongoing health crisis. Now, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has extended its eviction moratorium until March 31st. And nearly every local leader, advocate, experts, they all agree that you want to call it an eviction storm or an eviction tsunami is swirling. Now, recently, George Governor Brian Kemp announced the state received $552 million to launch the State of Georgia Rental Assistance Program. Sounds like good news, right? Well, joining me now to talk more about the State of Georgia Rental Assistance Program is Tanya Currington-Curry. She's Deputy Commissioner for Housing for the Georgia Department of Community Affairs. And Dave Wisnett, he's Division Director of Housing Assistance. Tanya, Dave, thank you both for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having us this afternoon. Very good to be here. Let's begin. Thank here. you. We're thrilled to be here and, and good to see you again. All right. Listen, before we get into the details of this program, let's just talk about the fact that Georgia received this money. And, and can you imagine how many, how this is just going to help people in general when you reflect about that? Tanya, I'll start with you. Absolutely, Rose. This is, uh, you know, it, it really feels like it's a a once in a lifetime um, situation in terms of federal monies and monies that we've, we've received to distribute throughout the state of Georgia. Um, as, as I know you and your listeners know, um, the governor announced that Georgia would be receiving $550 million um, toward rental assistance uh, that was part of the last um, federal stimulus bill. And so this is the money that um, DCA has been um, um, given to administer and to distribute throughout the state. And we're, we are very excited and really eager to get this money out to Georgians who need these funds um, so desperately after having been, um, you know, uh, without assistance and, and um, confined due to COVID and mm -hmm. um, unemployed and all sorts of things. And so this is, this is money that is geared to um, assist those tenants and landlords for sure. Dave, what about you when you reflect on what this money will be able to do for so many? It is such a big deal. And I think the thing that's been really hard over the last few months has been hearing from people uh, who really are behind on their rent and have no way to make their rent payments. 
Um, so this money is just an unbelievable opportunity to really help all of those folks uh, and to get them squared away, get the arrears taken care of so that hopefully we can all come out of COVID and, and not have a increase in the number of folks who are homeless. It's going to be a really, really big deal for the state. And I'm very excited to have the opportunity to work on this project. And so for some clarity here, the Department of Community Affairs, will they, is this the department that's leading this? I understand there is the, there is the state of Georgia rental assistance program, but it's the Department of Community Affairs that's, that's sure. overseeing all of this, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. So so um, you may know, Rose, I'm sure, because Dave has been on um, in the past, that mm-hmm. DCA is responsible for um, affordable housing throughout the state. And so in addition to this program, we have home ownership programs. Um, we have our housing choice voucher program. We have special needs housing programs. Um, and, and we're really the agency that is best suited and um, ready to deploy these funds across the state because we do um, administer those those programs on a regular basis. And uh, it's really just right in our wheelhouse. That's what we do, safe and affordable housing and community development on, on the other side of the house. And so uh, when we receive these funds and, you know, of course we expected them and, and we, we work with our um, congressional leadership in, in Washington to um, to um, request these funds, et cetera. But when we realized we would be um, receiving them, we, we immediately just jumped right into action to start standing up this program to get this rental assistance out across the state. And of course, there are a few other jurisdictions throughout the state that, that have funding, but we've got um, the balance of the state and the bulk of the funds that will be deployed. So. Okay, well, let's walk through this and let's take our time with this so our listeners understand. First, let's talk about who's not eligible um, for this. Are we talking about, so we're talking about renters, not folks behind on mortgages. It's strictly renters. Is that true? That is correct. Okay. So, so it's only only for folks who are renting, no mortgage assistance with this program. Okay. And do they need to be behind or having the hardship because it's related to COVID-19? They do. The, the, the situation that they're in really has to relate to COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so it could be experiencing a reduction in income or costs or other hardship due to COVID, but there does need to be a relationship between COVID uh, and the arrears that they have. And Tanya, maybe you can ask this for folks who are listening and, and they so far they say, okay, I'm, I'm eligible. What information do you need for them to gather? Absolutely. So um, what we're what we're planning for, there's actually going to be a, uh, a direct portal that people will be able to access to um, to gain more information about the program and also to to apply. So when they get to that portal, they'll need to um, input, you know, their basic information, name, address, and that type of thing. But then they'll also need to be prepared to um, have some documents ready. And those documents include things like uh, their state ID, mm-hmm. income documentation, um, past due notes on rents, um, or past due notes on utilities, because this funding will cover um, past due utilities as well. Oh. Um, uh, things like a copy of your lease, um, and, and any documentation that, that supports your um, 
um, inability to pay rent. So um, unfortunately, while we've been in this COVID time over the past year, individuals may have received, even though there was an eviction moratorium in place, mm-hmm. people may have received documentation of, of um, an, a pending um, eviction or something like that. And so all anything that evidences um, um, that um, inability to pay their rent or a pending um, eviction or, um, or past due um, rent or utilities, that's, that's what we'll be looking for. And they'll have an ability to upload that just the way, the same way you would uh, take a picture of something and upload it or uh, scan something and mm-hmm. upload it. It's, it's going to be a very user-friendly interface for, um, for them to, to submit their documentation. And let's be clear, that online is the only way to apply for assistance, correct? You can't call if you don't Maybe if you don't have access, to, you know, if you don't even have connectivity, yeah. there's no phone number a person can call. They have to find a way to get online to apply for this assistance. That's correct. There, there will be there will be a, a phone number, of course, because we, we do intend to reach absolutely everyone who is in need. And so there will be a, a phone number. There'll be a website and there will be, you know, additional um, ways to reach us. But the fastest and, of course, the quickest way for people to kind of get into the system and help us to start processing that need is going to be for them to to utilize the, the portal. It's just a, the most expedient mm-hmm. way. But of course, we recognize that there are people that, you know, either might not have access to Internet or um, might be, you know, might be senior citizens, might need a little bit of assistance. And so we're, we're going to be working through that. And uh, Dave, you might have a little bit more to add add to that in terms of accessibility. Absolutely. And in some parts of the state, you know, we know that there is not Internet access or there is not broadband. So uh, accessing the portal may or may not be possible uh, as we look at more rural areas. But what we're doing is we're also partnering with some of our agencies who we fund with some of our other homelessness and special needs programs. And they will be available if needed to step in to kind of bridge that gap with people who may need a little more handholding or they may need help uploading something or assistance with the application. So we're really thinking of the portal, uh, as Tanya said, as the fastest and best way for people to get their information in. Uh, but we do understand that not everybody may be able to utilize that mm-hmm. uh, for different reasons. So we will have uh, alternative means for people to apply. If you just joined us, I'm joined by Dave Wisnett. He's Division Director of Housing Assistance and also Tanya Curriton-Curry, who's a Deputy Commissioner for Housing for the Georgia Department of Community Affairs. And we're talking about the state of Georgia's rental assistance program made possible with $552 million that they receive uh, federal funding. Uh, now, landlord, landlords are also, they are eligible to apply as well. Is that correct? That's correct. So do they, are they applying on behalf of their tenant or if they've just, they can prove they've lost money because the tenant couldn't pay, couldn't pay the rent? It, it really is kind of a two-step dance, mm-hmm. so to speak. So the landlord or the tenant can initiate the application. And then when they get done with their part of it, then the application would go over to the other party uh, to fill out their part of it. So uh, really, the landlord and the tenant are working together on the application, although each has a separate part to fulfill. Now, Tanya and, and Dave, explain this to me, because it's to my understanding that residents of some Georgia counties are not eligible to apply for this program. Is that true? And if so, can you explain why? 
Sure. And actually, Rose, I'm so glad that you asked that because um, it, that it's not true. Um, we just want to, you know, make sure as the word gets out about the program, absolutely everybody across um, the, the state is, is eligible if they meet the, the, um, the requirements and the, um, the, the um, components of, of the program. What has happened is the federal government actually gave money to not only the state as a whole, mm -hmm. but to 12 other um, jurisdictions within the state that have populations of over 200,000. Mm -hmm. So uh, the city of Atlanta and about 11 other counties receive their money directly. And so what, we, um, what we're saying is, is that those jurisdictions have monies and they're standing up their own programs. Um, some of them have already started, because um, you may have heard uh, DeKalb County open their program mm -hmm. and um, you know, um, utilized all of their money and, and, and then they've, they've been able to close, close their program. We will now step in and, and continue to fund in those areas. But what's happening first is in, in those um, 11 or 12 um, other locations that got money directly from the United States Treasury, they're standing up their programs first. And then we will come immediately um, behind it. Our, our hope is that it's really seamless for the for the um, for the residents who are in need. So, for example, mm -hmm. if a county or a city runs out of funding, then you're saying you want someone could apply th through your program for assistance. Absolutely. And Absolutely. And what we anticipate is that, um, we're, well, first of all, we're in communication with all of those jurisdictions. We're really trying to work this as a, as a, as a group to a certain extent. Um, however, everybody's responsible for their own um, funding and their, their own compliance. And so um, we, would, we would want to just immediately know that those people would be directed to, toward us either, um, you know, through technology or just the fact that we know that we're now serving in those counties. But we don't want anyone to think that that they're not um, able to get the assistance, um, um, it, depending on where they live in, in the state, because it is statewide. And what if someone has already been displaced? Maybe they've been evicted or they had to move because they couldn't pay the rent due to COVID. They may be staying with friends or maybe staying in an extended uh, situation. Are you all, is that what, would someone be eligible then for assistance or do they have to currently be about to be evicted or they're just behind? Right now they need to be in the unit still uh, to receive payments. So that is, that's a programmatic rule that we have mm -hmm. currently. That's going to, you know, a lot of folks have, have, lost their 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 place to stay because of this uh, is there any anything that you all know of any means that can help those folks i know a lot of families well, have had to that, yeah yeah if we're we're looking at that sort of through the lens of our other programs that we have so we have other options such as rapid rehousing uh and other federal funding that may be able to help those folks regain housing mm -hmm. and receive a temporary subsidy for a period um, because part of the government stimulus money that came was also for ESG, which can provide that type of uh, assistance for people. And will the payments go directly to the landlord or will go to the renters? How will that work? To the landlord. To the landlord. And I know you, you all have been asked this before, but uh, what about turnaround time for these payouts? You know, we're, we're going to be looking to get them processed as, as expediently as we can. And we feel that uh, this process that we have in place to gather the information from the, both the tenant and the landlord will help expedite that process. And so 
Uh, I, I don't know that we have an exact, uh, you know, number of, of, of days or weeks that it's going to take, but we, we are completely standing up the, the program to be um, processing those payments as, as soon as we can. And, um, you know, the thing of it is, Rose, this program, the way it is currently set forth in legislation, is uh, slated to end um, at the end of September. And so we have been working just since really since December 27th, when we learned that the money was kind of coming down the pike, we've been working to put this program in place. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we, we've brought on um, uh, actually hundreds of additional staff to start processing and working through all of these applications. It's actually been uh, a great effort for us. And, um, and and in terms of just bringing on new staff and, and getting um, workers in place to start the processing. So we hope that the process will be ex expedited, not only um, because we know there's a deadline looming, but because mostly because we know that people have been in need for, you know, almost a year now since uh, since we've been um, under kind of the COVID um, framework. So we're looking for, forward to getting the money out. Now, can you give an estimate in terms of how much of this of this funding, this $552 million will need to go to operations. and But I imagine a bulk of it is going to go to help Georgians, correct? You know, when people hear you, oh, people yes. hear you talking about hiring folks and, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> which you do need yes. people, but, you know. Yes. Yeah, we do. We do need people. Um, but but our um, for a number of reasons, you know, again, we're the best agency to do this because mm -hmm. this is what we do. Um, we, we, we administer all other sorts of uh, rental assistance. And so we have the best framework in terms of current staff to stand it up. Um, it will be um, some amount, um, you know, a very low amount in the, in the single digits, I would say, mm -hmm. um, in, in, in terms of um, um, admin cost related to this. So we're not, um, we're not uh, thinking in any way that this is going to be kind of an administrative boom for the state. Um, mm -hmm. The, the vast majority, um, you know, is going to be going to um, to to all of these tenants that are in need, and um, that's really the way it should be. And really, that's the way the the federal government sets it up because we can only utilize um, the funding for certain levels of administrative expenses. So um, they 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 already build that into into the legislation, which is the way it is for most of our of our programs. So. Can either We're used to running programs on a very lean basis. So I've I've heard a lot of state I've heard a lot of state agencies say that before. Can either of you think yes. of another time? I'm thinking maybe the the, the Great Recession where, you know, st state departments, state agencies have had to come in and help so many people as it relates to something like this with housing. I'm thinking maybe you know the the, the Great Recession in 2008 might be the last time. Yeah. Well, that, that that is true, and you may be familiar, Rose, with our hardest hit fund that um, that came about um, about 2008 2010 timeframe, where we received a chunk of money from the federal government for mortgage assistance. And mm -hmm. uh, believe it or not, that program is just winding down. Really, um, utilizing it? Yes. Oh, at the end of December, utilized its last amount of funding. Um, and, uh, so we were actually, again, um, able to shift some of our resources that we had, um, over to that and, and people that had expertise in, in this type of program. Um, and so, yeah, it's been a little while, but the, the need is immense and we're, um, we're glad that we're in the right place at the right time to, to get this money out across the state. What has the response been like so far, Dave? 
Um, it's been it's been very positive. There are a lot of people, obviously, that are contacting us and wanting to find out the details and find out how they can get served. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that's only going to pick up. But I think people are very excited about it. Um, and they're very excited about the way that we've structured our program to hopefully make people whole. So we don't have a $1,000 cap or a $2,000 cap or anything like that. We're really trying to do what we can to make sure people get whole, get their arrears mm-hmm. settled away so they can move forward. As a matter of fact, I just got a question from a listener who wants to know, is there a cap in terms of how far back a person might be in terms of you know, what they owe in back rent? We can go back to mid-March. All right. So you the, basically the legislation allows you to go back to what they deem as the start of the COVID uh, period, which is mid-March. I have another question. Are y'all hiring? <laughs> which is a good question. Yeah. You just said you had to, you needed some people. So. We we uh, we're working primarily through temp agencies, but uh, we we are uh, always looking for good people. All right. So, what do I tell this person? How do they uh, how do they how do they send in a resume? Who who do they call? What what's... well, I can uh, I could I could get you if you want to if they want to send their information to you, maybe you could forward it to me, and I'll uh, make sure it gets to the right. So place. now I'm a recruiter for the state of Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is everybody on board situation. You know what? I'm, right. I, I'm happy to do it. I happy to do. It. Send me your resumes. Then you know, folks, if you're looking for a job, you want to work with this. Uh, so I'll just pass them on. I really appreciate that. Thank you for that, David. Uh, as we wrap up, uh, Tanya and, and Dave, and I've asked everyone this question: Where do you hope we'll be, uh, uh, not just as a nation, but maybe even as a state, in terms of by the end of the summer and turning the corner with this pandemic, and and obviously allowing folks to stay, you know, in their housing, if possible, where do you hope we'll be? Uh, Dave, you go first. Um, I really hope if we have not spent all of the money that we have spent a great proportion of it and that we have stopped evictions uh, in a very efficient way and kept people in their housing, uh, I'm hopeful just based on what I've heard uh, in terms of people being vaccinated, hopefully by the end of May, Mm -hmm. that will happen. And that we'll be back sort of in a normal situation. I mean, I, I know that uh, evictions, when a family is evicted, that takes a long time to recover from. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's much easier to keep somebody from being homeless than it is to help them once they are homeless. And we know that from running our homeless programs. So I just, I really hope to help create stability for families uh, and really have sort of life as usual by the time we get to that point in the year. All right, Tanya, I'll give you the last word. Did we lose Tanya? Is she with us? Uh, no, here I am. Okay, I'll give oh, you the last uh, word on that. Yeah. Sure. I was just gonna. I was just gonna add that you know, for us, um, you know, housing is fundamental to really every aspect of our lives. You know, if you if you've got a, a stable housing situation, you can you can work on your educational needs, you can work on your employment needs, you can work on your health needs. And so um, we really see this, this program and this effort as an opportunity to shore up all of those things for Georgians across, across the, the, the state. And, um, and when we get that housing stability back in place, we're going to be part of the solution to continue to grow the economy and and help people get healthy and and as Dave said um, help everyone get whole help the children get back to school and and all of those things so we we see it as a, an important part and a beginning part of the whole continuum um, along with everything else and we're we're excited to to keep it going so 
Tanya Curtin Curry, Deputy Commissioner for Housing for the Georgia Department of Community Affairs, and Dave Wisnett, Division Director of Housing Assistance. Thank you both for taking the time. We will have a link on our website to y'all's website for this assistance program, rental assistance program. Thank you both for taking the time. You're going to help a lot of people, a lot of Georgians. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rose, for having us. Pleasure to be here with you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. The Fulton County Elections Board, by majority, wanted to fire Elections Director Richard Barron, but the Fulton County Commission, by majority, did not. And so another vote was taken yesterday by the commission. Does this finally end the back and forth between the two county departments? Well, joining me now to talk all about this is Fulton County Commissioner Khadijah Abdul-Rahman, who represents District 6. Thank you so much, Commissioner. Thanks for coming back. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you, Rose. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. I'm tired. Aren't you tired? I'm tired. <laughs> I'm just tired. I know that. Let's get look. You all took a vote again yesterday, and by a majority, you're not approving the Board of Elections' desire to fire Richard Barron. Is this the end of this now, Commissioner? Unfortunately, it's not. Uh, we're trying to end it. Uh, I tabled the motion, uh, Commissioner Ellis. Uh, put in a resolution that's loosely veiled as an interest interest uh, interest mm-hmm. in uh, giving the rights away of the commissioning of the board of commissioners for the board of Reg- registration and elections to be able to fire the uh, actual uh, the director elections director. Um, mm-hmm. On the surface, it may look harmless until you fully read. Reading is, is fundamental. Read it all the way to the end. And at the end, it if you read it, it does give the elections, uh, the Board of Registration elections, the authority to fire uh, the elections director without our input. I, I put a motion to table it, and it was uh, approved. And when it... See, this is the thing. The will of the people of Fulton County has to uh, uh, survive special interests and voter suppression. And so on my watch, I take this very seriously for the brown and black community, for the marginalized and those that don't have a seat at the table. And so even though on on appearance, they say, oh, it doesn't do anything, it's it's just a... uh, resolution mm-hmm. no it's more than it's more than that and so no it doesn't end it it does end it to a certain degree because the motion uh was tabled and only those that tabled the motion have the right to bring it back so your fellow commissioner bob 
Ellis, again, this was yesterday, he voiced his concern uh, about the commission saying y'all should not be involved in overriding a decision by the county elections board. Take a listen to this. We all have a different lens in which we look at things. Uh, however, our opinions and those of the other citizens, our citizens should not be the determining factor for Mr. Barron's continuing employment. That power and that decision should rest with the Board of Registrations and Elections. Uh, the BRE is a bipartisan group. Uh, it should be the body which has that sole power to make the decision. It's their role to review the performance of the election supervisor and determine his duties. Your thoughts, Commissioner Rockman? Does Commissioner Ellis have a valid point? No, he doesn't. And I'm going to tell you why. It needs to be independent. There should not be a rubber stamp. And I take issue with what Commissioner Ellis said about it being bipartisan. Mm-hmm. You may It may be bipartisan on the surface, but they are political appointments. They are uh, Democratic appointments, too. Republican appointments, too. And the chair that's uh, done by the board, uh, the chair of the uh, board of commissioners. So bipartisan is not the uh, what the board is. The board is a political body mm-hmm. that should be bipartisan, but it's not. But the bigger issue, Rose, is oversight. Mm-hmm. We can't rubber stamp. We can't, we can't just say, okay, rubber stamp it. We've got to have in any functional society or business or corporation or, or even nonprofit, you always have an independent body. And even with us, we provide the budget. So you can't say, okay, well, you're gonna, we, we're going to let you provide the budget, but we're not going to let you have hearsay on the oversight. It doesn't work that way. And, and so we, we did what we were supposed to do. For clarity, which Fulton body appoints or hires the elections chief in this in this instance obviously it's Richard Barron. That's the that's the board of registration and elections, correct? Correct. Okay. And he's paid out of the whole Fulton County pot. I'm assuming that's how it works, correct? Correct. Now, when you spoke yesterday and even last week on the program, you stated through your lens the desire to terminate Richard Barron was a product of voter suppression. You still stand by that? Do you want to walk anything back? I do not want to walk anything back. I want to run further with it because even Commissioner Natalie Hall needed more time. And she brought to light what I had been saying, the performance reviews were not a problem. The monitor that is Republican that gave the report said that the issues that were created, that people were trying to say, you know, laid at his feet, had nothing to do with, with uh, Richard Barron. And so here again, with the most um, the most oppressive uh, voter suppression, House Bill 531, coming out, and I asked clearly Richard Barron yesterday, the mobile units of which $800,000 of uh, Fulton County money has been used to pay for those mobile units, they're pretty much just metal sitting blocks if HB 531 passes. And so I I, I hear again, I I have to have the the, the voters to engage themselves. That's why we had such a big outpouring in the uh, uh, comments, public comment section, because it's crystal clear that voter suppression has slithered its way into Fulton County. This is a voter suppression tactic. So 
You also stated that Blake Evans, Fulton's former elections chief under Barron, was going to be appointed interim or even election board director. You contend that that was going to be something at the hands of the Georgia Republican Party. And I still stand by that as well. Well, what could he what could Blake Evans do as the elections chief of Fulton County that might lend itself to what you're talking about in terms of voter suppression? Voter suppression comes in different forms. Mm-hmm. And one of the major forms that I think Blake Evans would have had a role in is to not to make see to make sure that communities that have been marginalized or communities of black and brown have an equal chance at voting. Mm-hmm. I don't believe, based on Blake Evans, and, and here again, people have to Google him themselves. He's been very adamant about getting rid of mobile voting. He's been very adamant about pulling back extended voting. And so if you have someone who's already pretty much said his feelings about what he would do as a uh, uh, elections director... I can only take him at his word. Mm -hmm. And so he's not going to come into Fulton elections trying to be fair. He's going to come into Fulton elections to make sure that the vote is suppressed. He's not going to do anything. uh, Whereas uh, Richard Barron had the opportunity to get grants, got ten and a half million dollars of grants. HB 531 says that he can't if it passes. Mm -hmm. And so... Like I said, people need to educate themselves and understand the person that they wanted to put forward, Blake Evans. All the person needs to do is Google him and see what it stands in. Don't take my word for it. The board also approved the appointment of former Atlanta City Council member Alex Wan as the new chairman of the Board of Registration and Elections. Um, the current chairwoman, did, did you see this coming? Mary Cooney recently, she resigned. She cited health concerns, and we want to respect that, um, respect her privacy on that. Um, you, Why Alex Wan? Why that appointment? Well, Alex, of course, Mary, uh, Ms. Cooney, we wish her best mm-hmm. in, in her health challenges and uh, uh, speedy recovery. Alex Wan, um, I believe, was the chair who the chair put forth. Uh, I remember Alex Wan from when he was on the uh, city council. Mm -hmm. I had an hour conversation with Alex Wan before I decided to get past his, uh, uh, to to support his nomination to chair. And this, I will tell you what I told him. If you're going to be fair and if you're going to make sure that people of color, black and brown, are not voter suppressed, marginalized, people who don't have a voice at the table, make sure that they have a voice at the table and be fair. That's all I'm asking Mm -hmm. is to be fair. Then I will support him. However, if he chooses the other direction, then I'm going to be one of his strongest adversaries. And so he assured me based on his past performance and based on what he considered to be, be right by his family. He talked about his lovely mom. Mm-hmm. And so he he told me that he feels as though what he brings to the table and his view of what needs to be done as, as in, in the in the spirit of fairness, that he will stand by that. There's not a major election until November, which, of course, is the municipal ge- general election. But there's a lot at stake there. Um, could any of this change again between now and November? Because all eyes will be I'm on Fulton pretty- County. <laughs> 
I am praying it won't. I stand by my uh, commitment to my district or in, and Fulton County as a whole. You got to understand a lot of people reached out to me that were not constituents that not only wanted me to speak up, but also thanked me on yesterday because this was clearly a voter suppression tactic. Uh, you know, you can r- wrap it up in a bowl, but it's still Jim Crow. So at the end of the day, I have to fight voter suppression, and this is still a form of it. Until we get past it, we cannot relax and, and, and rest. We still got to fight. You have always been very vocal and always talking about the late Emma Darnell as someone, as a mentor, as someone you want to champion what she tried to do on the commission and, and what she fought for. Um, that's important to you. It, it, yes, it is. Uh, Emma Darnell, Victoria Travis Jackson, James Orange, Jose Williams, they were all uh, my heroes and sheroes. The thing about Emma that I take personally and I try to represent Emma is a lot of times, even if people disagree with her, she was the moral voice. She was the voice of reason. She was a word to the right. And so of Emma and out of respect for Emma, it is my intention to be that word to the right. Fulton County Commissioner Khadija Abdul-Rahman, who represents District 6. Commissioner, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for coming back and keeping our listeners informed on what's happening. We really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you, Rose. You all are doing a great job. It's been my honor. And please enjoy the rest of the day. You too. Thank you. Closer Look is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. That means we're at the end of today's program. My engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 8. Not tonight, but tomorrow we'll return. As well as our podcast, subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. As I said earlier, got a comment? Let me know. Email me, rose at wabe.org. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.